0: I'm thinking of teaching a class and how not to conduct interviews. I'm wildly bad at it. I usually start out by singing to myself, and if that doesn't reveal my incompetence, then I'll just tell them. Uh, You'll find that I'm not the greatest interviewer, but I'm a good editor. Oh, good. And it's not that I don't prepare. I plan all my questions. But then when I'm looking at the person I've been thinking of talking to, I just go blank. Are you a member of the IPRC? I am. Um, uh, that's it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can expand on that. Um, I've been a member of the IPRC for several years.
0: This is my friend Adam.
1: Adam Lisser.
0: The reason I wanted to talk to him is his independence. He can be single for years. Five years. Sometimes five years at a time, and he'll be perfectly comfortable with it.
1: I had a roommate for a while that, um... You know, he just. We were in the kitchen one morning. He's like, "Well, man, it's time for me to find a girl." And I was like, "Oh, really? That's just how it works." And he said, "Yeah, yep, uh huh." And then the next several nights, he was just like going to bars, getting loaded, making out with whoever it would take him. And then one of those girls wound up being uh, his partner for a little while, and it was just like like he just kind of went to the girlfriend's store and came home with one he found acceptable. And I was like, whoa, okay. I guess that's how that works for some people.
0: Adam, on the other hand, I would say, seamlessly arranges his days around himself.
1: It's breaking it down and saying like, okay, I really want to get this done. I really want to say, introduce exercise into my life. Then I'll be like, okay, I'll get up at 7.30 in the morning, eat breakfast right away, have an hour rest, and then run for say, allow an hour of running or maybe add another 15 minutes in so that I can have stretching time or or another 15 minutes here so that I can get in some foam rolling or something like that. Or with my drawing, you know, I'll say like, okay, so after the run, then I'll allow for an hour of drawing time or something like that. Things that I like to do that actually enrich my life.
0: I could imagine a partner stepping in that just ruins it all. Oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, It wrecks it completely.
0: It's very easy, and I would say wrong, to call this arrogance. A professional athlete, for example, would arrange his day very tightly, and everyone would say, of course, he takes his training seriously. That's how he got to be so good. But being a world-class anything is not the only reason to take yourself seriously.
1: I feel like a lot of my friends that have been in relationships since... A young age and just kind of continue to be in relationships and never spend any time alone. I feel like sometimes when they do break up or find themselves single, they go through an identity crisis. And when I find myself breaking up and single, it's like coming home.
0: Adam's pretty much always been happily apart from the herd. He learned the joy of this as a teenager.
1: There was a time when I used to kind of run with the popular crowd at uh, the high school that I went to, the public high school there, I was just one of a couple of the spunky short kids that you know just kind of crack jokes and stuff. And I felt like all of those people were unreasonably mean to each other. And not just to me. Like, I didn't really get picked on very much. Um, Well, I didn't get picked on at that stage. I have been picked on before. But I just felt like the general tenor of people's conversations was just very... Judgmental and sarcastic and just rude. And my brother was hanging out with a bunch of people that were, they were all the artists that, you know, just hung out in the art room, kind of the outcasts of the school. And uh, those were his friends. And I just ditched all the friends that I had before and started hanging out with them. It was just kind of an instant shift where I stopped hanging out with all the humans and started hanging out with all the aliens. And it was like the best decision I ever made.
0: You're listening to The Staple, an arts and culture podcast Podcast presented by the IPRC. IPRC. (laughs) This episode is about outsiders. We already heard about the interviewer who's bad at interviews. Um, it's only, um... And the human male who is content without a partner.
1: I, like anybody else I'd get lonely, um, but...
0: And the feature of this episode, a Native American living in his Native America. He drives a Prius.
1: Oh, no.
0: That's Adam again. He has opinions about Prius drivers.
1: I feel like whenever traffic is bogged up, there's always a Prius at the front.
0: That is true, but there's a reason... It's because
1: we get the best gas mileage.
0: They have a little meter in the car telling them how much gas mileage they're getting, and it peaks when they drive slow. I think most people think that Prius drivers are timid, but you're, it's more about saving money. Oh yeah, it's it's a game. Safely driving this Prius is Trevino brings plenty. Before the Prius, he drove a Buick.
2: Buick Rendezvous, it's like an SUV, and I spend about almost 40 bucks to fill the tank every week traveling about 300 miles and now I spend 23 dollars every two weeks driving the same amount of distance.
0: He drives that much for his job.
2: I work at the Naya Family Center and for a lot of time I'm just out in the field.
0: Naya is the Native American Youth and Family Center. Trevino is part of a team there that helps people with mental health issues or histories of chemical dependencies. He helps them find stability, and he helps them find success on a level that most people might not think about.
2: It's definitely one of these things where you readjust your expectations and readjust what you consider success. So for a family that their success is being housed for a year and then continuing their outpatient treatment might be receiving public assistance and being stable, that's their success if their beginning story was they were homeless for years on end ideally of course want them to get jobs or increase their income somehow and be off public assistance but a lot of times people aren't there yet might not ever get there.
0: He's been doing this kind of work for a while, so it doesn't weigh on him as much as it might for someone with less experience.
2: I try not to take it home with me. You could have empathy fatigue from doing that kind of work if you don't take care of yourself.
0: He might not put it this way, but one of the things he does for self-care is write. He's been writing poetry for about 20 years now. His latest book, published by Backwater's Press is called Wakpawanagi, Ghost River.
2: Wakpa is Lakota for river or waterway, and Wanagi is spirit, and sometimes that spirit without form or never had a form. So I just say English translation ghost.
0: Trevino is Minikoju Lakota.
2: A minikoju Lakota enrolled in the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota.
0: And much of his writing blooms from this culture, although Growing up as part of a largely unseen culture, it took some time for him to learn how to embrace it.
2: For me, I didn't really write about Native American stuff until I was about 25. I don't know if that's like internalized racism or not wanting to deal with it. don't know how to deal with it, but once I intentionally made that switch to specifically look at Native American culture, or at least looking at my family, I start to get more comfortable with it.
0: Most of his poems, even though they're written in verse, they read like very short stories.
2: I'm a failed fiction writer. I have really a lot of trouble with long narratives.
0: These short narratives, in the guise of poems, tend to blend fact and fiction.
2: I take bits and pieces of stories I've heard. So some of it's autobiographical, um, but I live a pretty boring life, so that's I have to entertain on some level.
0: Two of his poems in particular made me want to meet him. They both feature his grandfather.
2: My grandfather, who, the alcoholism there, there are the mental health issues. There are different people that pop up. So when he was um, sober... There's a certain amount of clarity in his speech. And then when he was drunk and everything else, all this other stuff came out. It's going to take a lot of work or a lot of words to encapsulate someone's someone.
0: One of the poems is called Fear's Endurance. And in it, the reader is given these blurry glances through the curtains of his childhood home. You're not certain if what you just saw was real, but it's clear that it's not good.
2: As a kid witnessing that, since you're not able to have abstract thinking, you're very concrete, it's not until later that you, if you remember that and try to um, look at it with abstract thought, making the linkages between mental health and violence, domestic violence, it's really horrible
0: so he wrote that poem showing the darkness of life with his grandfather and then he wrote a poem called no eyes where he comes around and shows the vulnerability of this same paternal figure To accomplish this, he created a fictional scenario where his grandfather is standing in the Smithsonian Museum.
2: In the Smithsonian Museum, there are human remains.
0: Specifically, Native American human remains. They're part of a collection just like a collection of, say, artifacts from ancient Rome, but the Native American collection includes relatives of people living today. People's grandparents are there. In 1990, Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Action, requiring museums to return these dug-up body parts. But it's been slow. The Smithsonian has only returned about a third of the remains, and they are not unique. The University of Berkeley, one of the most progressive campuses, has returned about 300 of its 10,000 remains.
2: To think of your great-grandparents, that they're off somewhere else where you don't want him to be.
0: And that's exactly what he started to think about. He put his grandfather in that setting and had him paying respects to another grandfather. It's fictional, but of course, it really happens. In order to pay respects to their relatives, some natives can't just go to their burial grounds. They have to go to the Smithsonian.
2: In order to be with their ancestors, they have to submit themselves to the institution or the colonizing entity. It's comforting for that grandparent to be there, but on the outside, it's just like really violent.
0: The poem ends with his grandfather standing there, paying respects to a relative, and saying that the Sioux were more than warriors.
2: Yeah, there's people who fished, there's people who gathered. It's not just that one thing they did. I don't consider myself a warrior because that's submitting to the idea that we're at war and I have to play that role. And actually the difficult work is working towards peace, which ends that poem. I think the danger of writing about people, especially if you if someone writes about their their family <clears throat> when those family members die, it's difficult to read those poems again after you get past the initial idea of the poem itself, or the words, or just the image of where I was in the space in composing the poem. So here's the Whitaker Ponds. Oh, well, I've never been
0: here. He drove me to the Whitaker Ponds, a nature reserve with black cottonwood trees ringing two large ponds. There are thousands of native plants, a wildflower meadow. We didn't see the beavers or rabbits, didn't spot any woodpeckers or owls, but the ducks are easy to find. For about 10,000 years, this was Chinook territory from here along the Columbia River all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. The two ponds have been here for thousands of years, and up until the 1800s, this very site was home to a Chinook village. And then...
2: It was the dump.
0: A place to dump garbage. Not officially a city dump. Portlanders just decided it was a good spot to leave things.
2: At the time, thinking this is not habitable land, so why not just turn it into a dump? No one really cares. Different values at the time of our ideas of ecosystems and how they are all connected.
0: But then in the 80s, the city, community, and the Columbia Slough Watershed Council started to clean it up.
2: So they pulled out tons and tons of garbage out of here. Old washing machines, refrigerators, cars.
0: They ended up with 700 dumpsters worth of garbage. And now it's this nature reserve... If you stand in the middle, you can almost forget that just beyond the trees, in all directions, is heavy industrial business. The Portland airport is just to the north. Highway 30 is just to the south. Large automotive shops are everywhere. But here is quiet. We walk around one of the ponds, and Trevino tells me that he didn't stay long on the reservation where he was born in South Dakota. His family moved to California.
2: For relocation, training out there for jobs. It was an effort by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. All that family went out there to do job training. I stayed out there for over a decade, and then my immediate family uh, moved up to Oregon in 91, so I've been here ever since.
0: But he still had family in South Dakota, and in January of 2010, just after that big earthquake in Haiti, a destructive blizzard came through South Dakota, and he wrote this poem about how it affected his family.
2: Blizzard, South Dakota. Months afterwards, I see the electrical poles piled along the road. When the blizzard smothered the land, my tribe was displaced like shotgun blasts heard in the distance. Those poles snapped, weighted by ice. A month in motels, we ate fast food, while the winter deer meat expired in the basement. Movie stars flocked to Haiti. We watched the news, wondered about us, about our reservation, about our home. Those dialysis machines failed without electricity, pushed people farther away, closer to the spirit world. I still hear those poles ricochet at these wakes. There are a lot of uh, wooden poles and the weight of the ice just snapped the poles and that's how the, all the electricity went out everywhere. And so people were evacuated and had to go to the nearest bigger towns. And so my family immediately moved to motels for a month or so. People who are uprooted that quickly and then go on to a diet that they had access to fast food and that didn't help at least with my family who were they're diabetic so after that a month after that happened when they returned home my stepdad had a congestive heart failure two months after that he died and so that narrative played out with a lot of other folks too it's like they're impacted by this abrupt move changed diets and then a lot of them got pushed off into the spirit world so continuing the narr- the american narrative with native americans as being inv- invisible people there's a lot of national effort to send aid to haiti well yeah, at the same time you had this thing going on in south dakota which directly impacted my immediate family the only one that And the mass media that picked up on it was the Colbert Report, and they said, send funds out this way, and this is happening here in the United States. Why aren't we doing more about it?
0: Trevino organizes the poems in his books according to the Lakota Medicine Wheel, which has four quadrants spring, summer, autumn, and winter.
2: These different quadrants represent different parts of your life, so the first quadrant, that's your youth time, second quadrant is your adult time, third quadrant's later adult time, and then fourth quadrant's your elder years. Maybe it goes along with the native identity or idea of nonlinear time that we are actually in cycles. And so if you have that perspective of cycles happening, everything that's happening right now isn't new. We've been through it, we know what's going to happen, and it's going to happen again.
0: So, in the third section of his book, you meet a lot of the people who touched him during his time as a social worker. There's the poem called Jimmy, for example. It's inspired by an 11-year-old boy he met at a clinic. From
2: my other job, working with mentally ill children.
0: And when he met him, the kid was confused. He thought he was being brought to Pendleton to visit family.
2: Then they end up in Portland at this residential treatment facility, and they all know what's going on. And so with that poem, from the kid's perspective, all he wants to do is go home he's so far removed from his from his family, his media family, his community, his tribal center, that all he wants to do is go home. So he does as much as he can to exit from there. So that go, includes elopement from the facility. That includes um, suicidal ideation, everything, just self-destruction. Um, I think he had a connection with me because I look like his uncles. And so within the scary area of a Residential treatment facility and all that—that that milieu and culture has for him—it's the visual. His relationship with me was different than his relationship with other folks, because he wanted so much just to go home. There's a sunny side in here when you go out to play. There's a large kite in your hand. It'll fly. There's usually a bunch of ducks up here, like an obscene amount of ducks. (laughs) Oh, no wait, geese. They're even worse. Um, I'm not really a nature person. You're not? No. I don't like nature. Them to the moon. I only started to write about residential treatment after I stopped working there for a year. While we work there, the kids were placed there. So what's, what does that say about the workers who work with mentally ill kids? I mean, I try to be aware in my profession now not to do any transference or counter-transference. I don't want to work out all of my crap with my clients. I mean, that doesn't help them at all. I'm, I'm there as a job. So this one, Borderline, 2010, only after, in hindsight, I can look at some of these stories and say, man, these are really messed up, and these are real stories that happened with people. And so there's probably in this poem um, five different individuals with their stories. Borderline, Kayla climbed the fence, stationed herself on the roof, attempted to jump into the night. We'd call the emergency team. They'd talk her down. There were no other witnesses on campus, no audience, only professionals. Kayla stopped the rooftop talk, gave up the giving up. When the other clients went to bed, she went to her room, defeated, Sometimes she looked for reactions to react to, plop herself on the couch, bolted to the wall, and released a big sigh. She flung herself to other individuals, reflected their traits, those other identities. We tried to convey to the clinical therapist the deed to place her at a higher level of care. Her behaviors were escalating. Kayla began her countdown to seriously hurting herself. She returned from a dental appointment Her mouth was numb. She gnawed off her lower lip, threw flesh pieces at the staff. She laughed. She was rushed to the hospital. Doctor there told her she permanently disfigured herself. She protested her return. Clinical team said otherwise. She returned, continued hurting herself. She was finally moved along. Another Kayla arrived today. We start this treatment again. Come on, pretty baby. Come share your misery. Come on, baby. Come share your misery. As long as I was doing that work, there was a Kayla, and they seemed to have the similar reactive attachment disorder, PTSD. And um, with mental health, there's similarities that happen with different folks. And so we saw that, I saw that with different Kayla's that came through, and it was, I mean, coincidence that they had the same name. And I mean, I have to be aware, like, outside of the mental health world, that people who have Kayla are not gonna be like this. So. Now, it's interesting talking with, uh, working with high school students, there's a little bit of, I remember my high school experience in order to try to relate to them. But it's different. I'm still the adult, whether I want to believe that or not. My friends and I used to hunt nutria just for just for fun. Never really caught anyone, but it was exciting to go do that. You can eat them, actually. Uh, yeah, but they're, they're just giant rats. <laughs> But yeah, we would run around in the wetlands with machetes and BB guns. Uh, one night we got caught by the police. So it's industrial office space where we were walking through and they pulled us over. And I hid behind a bush while my friends got all their stuff confiscated. But they never saw me behind that bush. There was probably like a foot open space below the bush. That was pretty amazing that I didn't get caught. That was the nighttime. I think I was about 17 or so,
1: 16.
2: Yeah, I went to high school there. I did my second year of eighth grade there. Found out I needed glasses. (laughs) who was conceptualizing the idea of these different waves that were happening with Native writers. First wave, new writers, the 1800s, early 20th century, then in the second wave. From the 60s on, there was identity issues and people were trying to uh, assert their identity or their claiming of identity. And then once we get to 2000s on, we don't have to do that. We don't have to cover that ground anymore. We can be be an artist looking at art for for its own sake, which is interesting but also difficult because the story that people want to hear that's interesting about Native Americans is the stereotypes and tropes that go along with the struggling Native American race, all the negativity that goes along with what people perceive as... Native American lives. Just because I write about Native Americans doesn't mean I'm the, I'm the authority on them. Especially if I write about my family. I think I have barely authority on writing about my family. And that's all subjective to how much information and knowledge base I have and understanding of humans in general. Definitely in my 20s, I only knew so much. Early 30s, when I started to work with doing more social work, getting different perspectives, and especially the mental health side of it, my perspective and relationship with my family is different.
0: Yeah, you even have one poem where a line stands out that says, I'm not the authority. Yeah,
2: a fake authority. Something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's leaped on to Native writers is because you're writing because you have books out, because you write about a certain subject matter, you are the authority of it. Which for some Native and non-Native academics, that happens. If I were to take a tribal community perspective on it, everyone has bits of a story, but no one person has the full story. To get the full information of the story, you need everyone else. One, my grandfather had his eyes stolen. He said they were in the Smithsonian Museum. The last image he saw was a blonde-haired woman bending over him. He was newly back from Japan. He was still wearing his World War II uniform. He said it wasn't a good thing. But he was sadly satisfied his eyes were set next to his grandparents' bones. Two. My grandfather was a brakeman in his late teens. When he lost his left pinky finger, he quit and joined the army. There were a lot of Indians in the army, he said. They were seen as American heroes when we wore uniforms. He said, know this, grandson, the people were not all warriors. My cousin was a painter and storyteller. My brother was a fisherman. My sister tamed horses. Everyone ate food, breathed air, drank water. This is the family lineage. My grandfather rolled a cigarette. He was wearing sunglasses. It was evening just before supper. Every man wants to huff and puff their wariness, he said, but the real work is peace.
0: All of the music in this episode was written and performed by Trevino Brings Plenty. You can read more of his poems and find links to buy his books all on his website, trevinobringsplenty.com. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Sonny Bleckinger. Big thanks to Aaron Yankee of KBoo Radio for her editing advice and support. You can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, and Player FM, among other places. Questions or comments? email us at podcast at iprc.org. Thank you for listening.